again from Genesis through Revelation. All right. And I'd like to pray for us as we begin. Father, as we come before you today, you know, just in my own heart, I've, I've had a heavy heart this week. And I think about this particular topic, and I think about how it happens far too often in our world. And I, I pray for us. I pray that you would guard our heart. I pray that you'd guard my heart. I pray that we would listen to your word and take it in a very personal way and apply it to our own life that all of us are vulnerable to Satan's attacks if we don't keep our walk with you strong and firm and growing. I pray that, Father, as we think through what happened in David's life, that you would really help us all to hear the message that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do good people make bad choices? Do you ever think about that? Why do good people make bad choices? And maybe you've thought about that in your own life at times when you look back on things that you've done and you wish you could kind of erase that part of your life or that action that you did that uh, many years ago maybe still bothers you and you still struggle with and you go, why did I do that? A couple weeks ago, I brought up the example of David Petraeus, who's been this successful military general, and then he has this affair with a younger woman. And I saw just this week again, he had a a posting on on one of the things that he said was, I screwed up royally. And I can imagine David Petraeus just kicking himself all the way, going, why in the world did I do this? And then on Thursday of this week, we got an email from friends of ours who are in ministry down in Orlando, Florida, in a church that's one of the largest churches in central Florida. It's growing. It's at church plants, very successful. And they told us that their pastor, who's 35 years old, is the lead pastor in that church, just resigned because of adultery. He's got three children. You know, he's been married. He's got three children. He's a good preacher. He's been doing well, and yet now this comes out and it's just devastating and for our friends who are involved in ministry in that church uh, Jim's been asked to be the preaching pastor for the next six months and he's asking for prayer because what do you do how do you lead a congregation through something like this that is so devastating and sadly it happens it's happened with I mean we've seen presidents who have committed immoral acts we've seen congressmen and women we've seen military leaders pastors and others stumble and fall in the area of sexual sin. And somehow sexual sin, even in the scripture and the way it's addressed, seems to be different than any other area of Satan's attacks. It's why the Bible says that we should flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. There's something about it that gets at our very core. There's something about that oneness that is to be true only in marriage that affects us so deeply. And we wonder how people that are so successful in other areas of their life can make such poor choices that could destroy their marriage or their career. That's what happened to King David in the story we are going to look at today. It was really a golden age in Israel's history. I mean, after David became the king of Judah uh, and Israel... He would lead them in a string of victories that expanded their kingdom from Egypt in the south to the Euphrates River in the north and east. 
I mean, I look at the list of uh, things that he did after he became king, and it's pretty impressive. Uh, The first thing he did was he defeated the Jebusites, and he made Jerusalem his royal city. Now, Jerusalem, this walled city that's set upon a hill that's just so easy to defend in many ways, was almost an impregnable fortress. And yet David and his men took this city that had not been conquered before, and he makes it his capital. He defeats the Philistines in the west. He defeats the Arameans in Syria in the north, all the way to the border of the Euphrates. He pushes back the Edomites and the Moabites on the eastern side of his empire. He defeats the Amalekites in the, uh, in the south. And then he goes back and he takes these Canaanite cities that have been strongholds for over 300 years, when Joshua and the people of Israel came into the land, when the judges were in the land, they couldn't drive out the Canaanites out of these cities that were there. And David defeats all of them. And he establishes this kingdom from north to south that is just so amazing. I mean, life was good. If you talk about this and you think about the people that were there, I mean, the Israelites feeling pretty good about themselves. The nation's prosperous. Everyone's got a job. Business is going well, you know, spiritually. It's like, this is great. Everything David touched turned to gold because God's hand was on him. He was like a golden boy, and this was like a golden age. And then came this serious moral failure in David's life It was a turning point for him and for the nation. How did it happen? Why did it happen? The sad thing is it can happen to us too if we are not too careful. You may have heard this saying before, but you can spend your whole life trying to live down one night of living it up. That's a sad truth. You, you can spend the rest of your life. I mean, that's a message you as teenagers need to hear as well as adults that you can spend your whole life trying to live down one night of living it up. You think nobody's going to know or you can get away with this or you can just do whatever you want to do and follow, you know, the fleshly desires that we have. But there are consequences that we see in David's life and in the world around us. So what do we do? What can we learn from David's story? I think this is a very important message. I've been feeling this week, even in preparing it, like there's spiritual battle going on, and that's why, you know, I'd ask you even to pray while we're going through this particular passage in your own heart and just say, God, speak to me. This is his house, and this is his day to do his work in each of us. So what do we do? Number one, we need to avoid sin's conception. The time to deal with sin is before it starts. Right there when that temptation comes to deal with it, to turn away from it. It's not to let it take root and then begin to grow and try to deal with it later. It's much better if we can deal with it before it even begins. In chapter 11, here's what the scripture says as we look at David's life. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Okay, so here you have this setting. The army goes off to war. David stays home. Now, David's getting older. I mean, he, he could have done that. You know, that was fine for him to do on one side. But the way the story is told, 
it is saying that David wasn't where he should have been. David wasn't where he should have been. And we see that he had idle time and wandering eyes in the very next verse. It said, One evening David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. So here he is. Maybe he's thinking about the army. Maybe he's thinking about what's going on or his own life. Or maybe he has other thoughts in mind. But he gets up and he goes on the roof of his palace. And he begins to look out over the other roofs and he sees this woman bathing. I wonder when I read a passage like this, is this the first time it happened? You know, is this one of those things that just happened out of the blue to David and here's a temptation, you got to deal with it? Or I wonder, is this something that David kind of knew she might be there? Had he seen her before and did he sneak up to go see her in the same way that some men will sneak down to look at their laptop and look at pornography? I wonder what was going on. I don't know. I read uh, Beth Moore's book on Friday, When Godly People Do Ungodly Things. It took a day, and I just read through this book and all of it. And she talked about examples where uh, men and women both have been sometimes blindsided by sin. I mean, they were godly people who never thought that anything like this would ever happen to them, and all of a sudden they were blindsided by it. They fell into sin. They did something that they thought they would never, ever be capable of doing. And then there are other people who let habits grow and things begin to develop in their life in the area of what they were looking at or watching and they were kind of desensitized to the sin around them and they walked right into it. It can happen. And it's not just sexual sin. I mean, it can happen with, um, you know, gambling can become an addiction or alcohol or other things that become addictions in our life. I mean, can you imagine if you, if you struggle with gambling, you know, and, as a problem, and then you hear on the news every day this week that largest power ball in history, you know, 500 million, here's a half billion dollars, you know, just go out and buy those tickets. And the odds of winning, one in 175 million? And then you think of what that's going to do to the person who wins, it'll probably ruin their life. I mean, you win something like that, you got to move, you got to go to a gated community, you got to look out for your kids, you know, you got to realize there's going to be lots and lots of letters from people claiming that they are desperate for help and they need you to help. And it'll, it'll change your life, it'll ruin your life. And yet we have people trying to buy those things as quick as we can 130,000 every minute. Tickets for being sold. It's unbelievable. So I mean that there's other areas besides sexual that people can fall into sin. But here's David, you know, so he's got idle time and wandering eyes. That's not a good combination. But there's one more part to the story that I think is also significant too. And that is that David was successful at work, but he was not successful in his marriage or at home. If you think about, you know, leading this nation, being successful, there was nobody better. I mean, this is unbelievable what God had done through David. But when you look at his family situation and his home, not very good. In 2 Samuel 6, if you have your Bible and want to turn back there and follow along, you can. Um, Otherwise, it's going to be up on the screen too. But remember, when David defeated Goliath in battle, Saul, who was the king at that time, said to the man who defeats Goliath, 
I will exempt his family from taxes and I'll give him my daughter in marriage. And so David and Michael, the daughter of Saul, are married. Now, I don't know what their relationship was like at the beginning. Did he love her? Did she love him? I mean, was this a good beginning to a marriage relationship? I don't know. But when we pick up the story in chapter 6, it's not good. And David is bringing the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem, and he is excited about it. He takes off his robe, and he's dancing in front of the ark as it's brought in the city. And it says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. I mean, she thought he's acting like a fool. You know, what's David doing out there? She did not like that at all. So David comes home from the office. You know, you might look at it that way. He's coming home from the office, and he's really happy at how the day went. In fact, this is one of the greatest moments of his life. The ark of the Lord was brought into Jerusalem. And this is a day to celebrate. And he comes home, and what does his wife say to him? When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. I mean, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls, of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would do. You know, I mean, here he is. He's excited. What does she do? She criticizes him. I mean, there's no affirmation that this was a good thing at all. She just takes her shot at him. And then how does David respond? This isn't good either. He attacks his in-laws. All right? You know? David says to Michael, well, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. And I will celebrate before the Lord. And I'll become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now I look at that. Okay, here he is. This is his wife. And what's going on here? It's not good, is it? You know, David, when he comes home, I mean, he's wanting to be affirmed. He's wanting to hear that words of affirmation from his wife. He doesn't get it. And David, instead of trying to understand her hurt, attacks her, makes the situation worse. And what happens is there is no communication, there's no warmth, there's no intimacy, and we have the death of a marriage. Now that doesn't excuse David's action with Bathsheba, but I wonder if it played into it and made him more vulnerable to temptation. And how different might it have been if when David came home, you know, Michael had said to him, David, I am so proud of you. I'm so proud of you and what you did. And what God is doing here, what a day to celebrate and rejoice. Or what if David had said to his wife, Michael, you know, I hear that there's, there's hurt. What's behind that? And if he had listened and maybe she had insecurities thinking, David, you're out there dancing with all these other cute girls and, and I'm concerned that they're going to love you or your heart's going to turn away and I'm fearful about my own insecurities. And David had said to her, honey, I love you and I will never leave you. What if things had been different? Would this event with Bathsheba have not have happened? 
And my point is to say, you know, that, again, it's not to excuse what David did at all, but it's to say, you know, if we're struggling in our marriage and there are issues there, and there's tension or there's fighting and arguing, and we're not working that through and forgiving and loving one another, we are just simply creating a foothold for the enemy to work. We're just giving him an open avenue to drive right in, set up shop, and begin to cause even more problems in our relationships and our marriage. And we can be ripe for a fall. And so here you have this situation where it didn't happen, and David is now faced with a choice. He sees Bathsheba, and will he look away or will he lust after her? Will he flee from sin like Joseph when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife? Or will he follow his carnal desires? There's a time when sin is conceived and it grows in our heart. James 1, 13 to 15 says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. There's a time when, you know, you, you got a temptation. And if you follow that and you see it, you know, you can work on things in your mind. You can begin to rationalize it, excuse it, try to put yourselves in those situations. And sin becomes full grown. And you act on those desires. The time to deal with sin is before it starts. Don't put yourself in the place of temptation if you know you are vulnerable, if you know you're struggling. You know, one of the best things you can do is to tell somebody else what your struggles are because as soon as you bring this out into the light, Satan hates that. He hates that. Sometimes the temptation just goes away immediately because you just told somebody and you've asked them to pray for you. And you said, you know, I want to be honest about that. I'm struggling today with this. Would you pray for me? Or this is something that's really tough for me right now and I want to be held accountable. And you do that. And just bringing it out into the light can be so significant. When we keep it in secret, think that we can deal with these things all of ourselves. We're just giving Satan leverage, giving him an advantage. Why did David do this? Now, I think of one former president who said of his immoral actions, he said, I know it's a horrible reason, but I did it because I could. Because I could. And sometimes people think that they are either above the law or they can get away with it, and it is a lie. David sent for Bathsheba, and she sends back word, I am pregnant. I am pregnant. Now what do you do? When we sin, we need to avoid sin's cover-up. When you look at verses 6 and following, you see how David tried to cover up his sin. And I won't read the whole thing. Hopefully you've read uh, it today or a lot of this. But David tries to cover up his sin in three ways. Plan A, he brings Uriah home from the battle. And he uh, says, you know, hey, Uriah, you know, why don't you just enjoy a little R&R, go home and wash your feet. And wash your feet doesn't mean wash your feet. I mean, he's saying, why don't you go home? And he even sends a little gift, you know, for him. I'm not sure what that was, if that was some, you know, wine or chocolates or whatever. But he's saying, you know, why don't you just go home? And Uriah is more honorable than David, and he will not go home and sleep with his wife. He sleeps on the steps of the palace. 
And when David hears that, you know, he sends for him and he says, why? I mean, why'd you do that? He said, well, how can I go and enjoy the pleasures of men when my comrades are out there in the battlefield and they're suffering and they're sacrificing? How can I do this? Uriah is more honorable than David in this regard. And so David tries plan B. Plan A didn't work, so he goes with plan B. I'll get Uriah drunk and then send him home. And that doesn't work. And so plan C is that David arranges for Uriah to be killed. He sends a letter that is even carried by Uriah to the commander of the army, Joab, that says, put Uriah in the front in the fiercest part of the battle and withdraw from him so he'll be killed. How awful is that? You know what makes it even more appalling when I read this story is Uriah was one of David's mighty men. Remember David had this band of 30 that were his his heroes. I mean, these guys were known for their valor, for what they had done in terms of uh, defending or fighting the army, the victories they had won. He was one of the heroes, one of his mighty men. And this is how you treat him? It's a horrible part in David's life. Uriah is killed in battle. Bathsheba will mourn. And then he will take Bathsheba to be his wife. But in verse 27, the scripture says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And for a time, it looks like David's cover-up is working. But it won't last. And it is eating him up on the inside. In Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, David said this, When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. See, that's the deal for a believer. You can't sin and get away with anything because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And God loves us too much to let us be there, and so it just feels like His hand is on us. And we feel the weight of our sin even more acutely. God loved David too much to let him get away with this, and so he brought it out into the open. And when God does, the third thing we need to do is to accept accept sin's confrontation. We see that in chapter 12. You heard the story as it was told on the video of how God raises up Nathan, a prophet, and sends him to David. And David's sins are exposed by God through Nathan the prophet. Nathan tells this story about a poor man who has one little lamb who raises him like he is his very own and part of his family. And then this king comes and he takes that lamb and slays it rather than taking one of his own. And David's enraged by this story. I mean, it's just so unjust. It's so unfair. It's, it's shocking. And David's enraged and says, you know, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are the man. You are the man. And David once again has a choice to make. Will he accept or deny the accusation? Will he admit his sin? Or will he make excuses and blame others? Or third, will he kill the messenger? I have been with people who have responded in all three ways. 
one of the tough things as a pastor is that sometimes you need to deal with sin and confront things that are going on in people's lives. And I've been there when I've seen people who have repented and who have admitted it and owned up to it and asked for forgiveness or done the right thing to bring healing in their marriage or relationships or whatever it was. And I've also been there when people have made excuses and played the victim. Well, it was because of this or this or this. That's why I did it. Or, or you know, it was their fault or it was this person. And they blame others and they make excuses. And they never find healing. They just go on and they repeat it again and again. And I've seen that in people's lives. And I go, what's it going to take to get you to the point where you hear this from the Lord and respond? And I've been there at times when people want to shoot the messenger. And they'll say to me, and they'll say to whoever brought it up, they'll say, it's your fault. If you just kept quiet about this, none of this would have happened. And they didn't want it known, and they wanted it kept in secret because it's painful. But I've also been there on the other side when people have come back and they said, thank you. Just this week, it's interesting, in the context of this message, I had somebody come and talked about a situation many years ago when I had come to talk to them. I had totally forgot about it. I had just forgotten about the situation, but a person came just to say, I want to say thank you for confronting something in my life many years ago, and God used that. We need that. We need to see confrontation as an act of mercy on God's part that he loves us, and he wants us to change. And I can tell you from experience, it is only those who confess their sin who find hope and healing. David found forgiveness and restoration because he admitted his sin to God. In Psalm 32 again in verse 5, if you go to the next slide. He said, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Why was David called a man after God's own heart? I mean, I want you to think about this. If you compare Saul's sin with David's sin, okay, what was Saul guilty of? Saul was guilty of pride, arrogance. There were times when he was selective in his obedience. He had partial obedience. You know, and so here you got pride and arrogance on the one side. What was David guilty of? Murder and adultery. And you look at that, and you think about in our world, I mean, there are people who look at David, and they say, I would never forgive David. I would never put him back into any position at all because of what he did. I mean, that's like, that's an unforgivable sin. And yet, which person was God more pleased with? He wasn't pleased with either of their actions. But which one was restored? David. Why? Because when Saul was confronted with his sin, what happened? He had a hard heart, he made excuses, he rationalized his sin, and he grew farther away from the Lord. Instead, David, what did he do? When Nathan came to him, he admitted it, he confessed it, he repented of his sin. David had a tender heart, he felt awful about what he had done, and he drew closer to God. That's remarkable. That's amazing. I mean, we all sin. But the difference is in how we respond to our sin. 
Will we be honest with God and accept his confrontation and rebuke in his life? Will we admit our sin and be restored? And fourthly, I want to say also as a fourth point, we need to accept sin's consequences. And we see that in chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. Now, right now, you're probably wishing that this was a three-point sermon, and I wasn't talking about this part. Forgiveness restores our relationship with God, but it doesn't cancel the consequences of our sin. If you've had an affair, it's going to take time to rebuild and bring healing. If you've stolen something, there needs to be restitution. If you've broken the law in some way, there's probably a fine that you have to pay or it may be a sentence of something that you need to do. Forgiveness doesn't cancel the consequences. It's still painful. And for David, the consequences were great. I mean, in chapter 12, we read, the baby that was born to Bathsheba would die. David's daughter, Tamar, would be raped by her half-brother, Amnon. Tamar's brother Absalom would plot his revenge for two years. He was thinking about how he could kill Amnon. Absalom would rebel against his father David and try to become the next king. David would have to flee for his life again like he did with Saul. And Absalom, his son, would be killed and David would grieve for him. I mean, there were terrible consequences for his sin. But what we see in David is David didn't blame God for that. David accepted the consequences of his sin and he drew closer to God, asking for his mercy and his forgiveness. And God not only restored his relationship with him, but God would bless his marriage and he would restore David to leadership. It's a remarkable story of grace, and that's where I want to end with this message with hope. Because David and Bathsheba will have a son who becomes the next king of Israel, Solomon. I'm going, you know, it wasn't a child born in another relationship. It was out of this marriage comes the next king of Israel. And Bathsheba then becomes part of the line of Jesus, the Messiah, along with Rahab the prostitute and Ruth the Moabitess. And you're going, I I mean, who but God? Pardon sin like that. And who but God can take broken people and bring healing and give grace? I mean, that is good news. You see, sometimes we may feel like we have blown it so badly in our life that God could never use us. And we just feel like all hope's gone and I'm just going to have to sit on the sideline for the rest of my life. I have a feeling that pastor in Orlando is just kicking himself every single day and going, how could I be so stupid? I was had. I was had by the evil one. And maybe you felt like that too. The good news is that there is a God of mercy and grace who forgives us our sins when we repent and turn to him. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, Hebrews 11 is like God's hall of fame, only we call it God's God's hall of faith. You know, and it's all these great stories of people that trusted God and walked with him by faith. David's name is in there. And there's no asterisk next to his name. You know, this isn't like, you know, Pete Rose, he gambled on baseball. Or it's not like, you know, anything like that. This is, David's name is in there. And it doesn't say, you know, David was a good guy except when he blew it with Bathsheba and Uriah. 
Does that give you hope? It should. It should. And I think of how God does that over and over again. Beth Moore, who many of the women in our church love for the studies that she's done. Talked about in her own life. She doesn't give the details. She said something between the ages of 18 and 22. She blew it royally. She was a believer and she sinned against God and did some things in her life that she is very ashamed of. But by God's grace, he restored her. And she has a wonderful ministry. And I think of Kim Jeffries, Katola, who was a radio announcer, WCCO, KSTP, and other, you know, kind of for 30 years in the Twin Cities area, was well known. As a young woman, she had an abortion. And she carried the guilt and shame of that for many years and then found forgiveness in Christ. And she has a ministry called Life Redeemed, and she talks about that and helps other women that have gone through abortions find hope and healing. God's in the business of redeeming broken lives. So what do we learn from this chapter of the story? We learn that when we sin, and we all will, the only proper response is honest repentance. Don't make excuses. Don't be like Saul who tried to excuse his sin. Be a person of integrity. Be like Uriah, that noble warrior. And turn from our sin. Repent. And turn back to God like David, who confessed his sin and found healing. And then finally, let's worship a God of grace who forgives and restores. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you know us and you love us. You know our sin, even today, and where we stand with you. And Father, I don't know what's going on in everybody's heart, but I pray that this message of hope and forgiveness would come through, that we would turn from our sin, bring it out into the light, give it to you, and find healing and restoration. In Jesus' name, amen.